Welcome everyone to On the Flight Line. I'm Marcus Gropel, and today's episode we want to welcome a guest who is a dedicated individual who has been part of many different organizations, and he's also considered a day oneer for Lion Air Museum. We'll explain a little bit more about that during the show today. But I want to welcome our guest today, Mr. Bill Pemberton. Hello, Bill. Hello. How are you? Just fine. How was the drive in today? Easy. Easy. It was it was a little rainy, right? A little rainy, but no traffic. Are you used to it? Are you were you born here to get, or were you born out so that you know the all the, the the weather, how to drive in weather, or? <laughs> well, I was born in New Jersey, so I know a lot about driving in inclement weather. Oh, so you've been you, you you've done the snow, you've done the rain, and all Correct. that. Oh, Correct. Oh, so New Jersey. I was born and raised in New Jersey. And then you stayed there pretty much. I stayed there until I was seventeen years old. I joined the Navy at seventeen. Okay, so you so that so during high school, were you were you graduated already? I graduated. So I was born in New Jersey, and I grew up in a very rural part of New Jersey. They had a small school system, mm-hmm. but they did not have a kindergarten. So at five years old, I entered the first grade instead of kindergarten. So when I graduated from high school, I was sixteen years old. Sixteen. Sixteen. Be- so because of the, the year, the year difference, yeah. Granted, three days later I was seventeen, mm-hmm. but officially but sixteen years old when mm-hmm. I graduated from high school. Wow! So that's like because like normal school, you'll be out by eighteen, really, when you're Correct. officially an adult. Correct. So, talking about uh, joining the Navy, how were they, were you approached by them, or did you go seeking? Actually, to- I was working in a drive-through, a, you know, a drive-in like Sonic. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a group of my buddies from high school drove in one night and said, Bill, we're going to join the Navy tomorrow. Would you like to join us? And I said, absolutely, because I didn't have that good grades in high school. Mm-hmm. Plus, there were no junior colleges in New Jersey at the time. Oh. So I was at a loss as to what to do, and they basically saved me. I mean, the, the Navy really gave me a good basic knowledge to proceed with my mm-hmm. life. How long would that process be from joining the Navy before moving to basic training? Was it a long process to apply? Or? Oh, no. I, uh, I applied the next day. Mm-hmm. And on July 15th, I was on a bus headed down to basic training in, in um, Bainbridge, Maryland. Oh, okay. So it didn't take very long at all. Mm-hmm. So they just immediately just took you on the bus Bam. and sent you on. Yes. So what is basic training entail? Because I know a lot of our listeners, they're, they're not really, they, they're not part of the service. So that, what is basic training kind of entail? Basic training is how to survive in the Navy. Mm-hmm. We had firefighting courses. We had underwater survival courses, al- along with some basic Navy standards. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, how long of a process is that usually? That's about three months long. Three months long, okay. Yes. And, then and then right from there... I went to radio school, mm-hmm. which was right there on the same Navy base. Oh. Okay. So then the radio school, so that's, is that kind of, was there a list of things that you could have chosen and you chose mm-hmm. a radio or was that kind of an assigned thing? That was assigned to me because they were very short of radio men in the Navy at the time. Oh, okay. okay. Yes. So was that a long, like how, how did you learn? I mean, that's, that's Morse code, right? So that's Morse a lot code, of stuff. Morse code, yes. So how, what was the, like, the classes like where they showing you things or like no it was <laughs> right off the bat we were we were taught mm-hmm. the basic morris code and all the characters that go along with it and what each character sounded like on your earphones when you're taking morris code mm-hmm. 
And to graduate from radio school, one had to copy 26 words every minute. 26? Yes. That's, that's like, what? I can't even type 26 words a minute. <laughs> well, the, the best thing. Oh, wait, I can. Yes. Oh, wait. See, the, one of the classes that really gave me a, a, an up on everybody else mm -hmm. is because in high school, I took typing class. So I knew the I knew I knew the key I knew the word mm -hmm. where all the letters were on the mm -hmm. typewriter. So is the sound that the the what is that called? Is that This a, is a Morse code key. A key. Okay. So is so is there a like a certain length of sound that yes. produces a character? Right. That's a dot. That's a dash. That's a dash. Okay. So then how about letters? Is there a combination of sounds that it does, or is it all? Okay, so this is inter international Morse code. Okay, so the length of a dot is one unit. Okay, a dash is three units. So what's a unit? Is that the length of of the yeah, press? The, the length of the press down. Okay. So like an A, for instance, it's a dot and then a, uh, a dash. Oh, Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there's a whole letter of alphabet. So does that mean that you, when you're sending out messages, it will be every single letter you have to spell out? Correct. And then they'll write it down, whoever is on yes. the other end? Oh, wow. And that and the, how long was that school for? Was that? 26 weeks. 26 weeks, and you had yes. to learn all that. Yes. So basically learning a whole other language in Correct. a way, right? Wow, so this is all, this is very interesting. Oh, every single letter, all 26 letters. So that's international. So everyone will know wherever you send it. It will they will know the uh the name, the the sounds that it will make. Okay. Correct. So what did you do after your radio school? After radio school, I was assigned to the USS Forrestal, oh. which was the first supercarrier made in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I was a plank owner on that ship. A plank owner is the first commissioning crew on a Navy ship. Okay. So, um, so you were was that? So then you were placed on the ship. Was you were you also working in the radio since I you learned that? Mm -hmm. They call it the radio gang. Like radio gang. The radio gang. That's the that's the, gr the group of us that mm -hmm. would work in the radio room. You know, we worked from one meal to the next. Right, and one of the things I did with Morris Code, especially when I was on from midnight until 6 a.m., I would copy United Press International, the newspaper. Oh. Okay, sit there all night long and just copy Morris Code. Mm -hmm. And after a while, it becomes instinctive. instinctive. Okay, when you, mm -hmm. you hear that, you know it's an A. Mm -hmm. So it's more instinctive after a while. Mm -hmm. And so I could sit there and read a book and copy Morse code at the same time. Mm -hmm. and then I had a big roll of paper, huge roll of paper. And after a while, one of the typists would come in, cut off that piece of paper, take it into their room. And, you know, we didn't have copy machines. So remember the old mimeograph machines? Yes. Okay, they would type up a mimeograph sheet. We'd run off a couple thousand copies. So when, when the guys came in for breakfast mm -hmm. in the morning, they had a newspaper to read. Wow. So that yeah. So with the community, I mean, not now like nowadays where they just send everything via email. That was their way of getting the news yes. across everything. And that right now the radio man classification in the navy is obsolete. 
Oh, okay. Because now it's all secure lines and internet. Mm-hmm. And it, yes, so everything's all private, secured, encrypted. Yes. Yes. Now it is. No one can look at it. So we we have this picture here. Is that so? This was so. This was you, right? You said second from the bottom. Yes, that's me. Oh wow! So then you have that's your your is that so? That's your little uh, typing yes. your station with your right. typing. So then you'd listen to the code, then you'd be typing it all out. Yes. And oh. you see the guy third from the third one. Yes. Third one. Uh huh. You see his arm. Yes. Okay, his arm is in there. He is sending a message. He's sending a message. Okay. Oh wow! So then they'd all. So the sending a message. So there's a little. There's so you have there's your one of station. These things one of those connected to a connected to a huge transformer. Mm-hmm. And they'd be sending that message over. Sending that message. Oh wow! So you were on the aircraft carrier. Where was your first destination? Like when you were shipped out? Do you remember exactly? It's called a shakedown cruise. Oh, okay. okay. Take the ship out and put it through all everything you can to make sure the ship. It was built to specifications, mm-hmm. and we would have a list of things that did not work properly. That's called, in, in those terms, it's called the punch list. Mm-hmm. Everything on the punch list was bad and had to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And we went to our shakedown cruise was from Norfolk, Virginia, where the ship was based, mm-hmm. to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Oh. All the way down over there. All wow. the way down there. Wow. So... So that was your basic duty. So there was that. Was that just your duty on the ship? Was just to be the radio? Yes. Radio? Okay. Yes. Um, so who did? You, okay. So like kind of the classification. Who did you report to when you were sending these? Like were you, when you were sending messages, was it to a lot of people, or was it just to a specific person you were sending those well, messages? Well, usually it's from one ship to another ship, or from one, uh, or from ship to shore. Ship. Oh, okay. Okay. So there wasn't anyone specific you were reporting no, to no. up there. Oh. Was there like a weird one, or was there? No, one of the see one of the one of the things, especially taking Morse code from shore, mm-hmm. is they were sending out messages that had to be coded, mm-hmm. okay, coded and decoded messages, okay. Now, when you're when you're taking Morse code like on a, on from a regular person, and you can tell basically what the word is going to be by the way it's sent, but coded messages were. Groups of five letters, all different. Groups of five letters, and it could be a long one. Okay, so you really had to concentrate because you didn't know what letter was coming next. Okay, I mean, if I was going to be copying Marcus Mm -hmm. after I got MAR, I I knew that was going to be CUS following it. So I practically already had it typed out. Mm -hmm. But on these coded messages, letters all mixed up all mixed up and then they have to be kind of scrambled then then they had to give that to an officer who went into the cryptographic room and decoded the message oh so there was no signal to like you guys to when you received the message that this was a a a coded message correct so then you just have to hand it off whatever was given to you to the next person to be re re oh okay did you were you able to like was there was everything strictly formal was there any times where there were kind of these weird little like joke messages or something that would come through or was everything strictly just formal? everything was formal formal there was yes. no fooling around no if no. not you'd be you'd yes. be axed <laughs> right what they would do if somebody was acting up like that mm-hmm. they would send them on kp duty for three months kp, KP. kitchen patrol oh okay <laughs> you get down there and 
you might wind up in the in the in called the scullery mm-hmm. where all of the trays and silverware are cleaned oh and okay. washed and put away you washed them yeah all and all done all that oh right. so they just ten- kicked you right out yeah get out of here <laughs> so how long did you do the radio uh like the morse code on the ship for uh well i was on that ship from october before october 1st 1955 until june 19th 1958 and in all that time it was morse code Except when I got I would I got a promotion, I got two promotions. One of them was to a radioman second class, an E five position, and then I was the supervisor of that section in radio room number one. So I was in charge of everybody in radio room number one, mm-hmm. which is that picture you have. That picture. Oh, that was radio number one. Right. Then I have in charge of a place called Main Communications. Mm-hmm. Okay the radio message would be sent to them. They would type it up formally and then take it to the person to whom the radio message was sent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be the captain, sometimes the executive officer, but they would type it all up and then they would take and put it on the clipboard, take it to the captain's office where he would sign off on it and then come back. Mm -hmm. Then we had a teletype room. Okay, so there were messages sent by, longer messages were sent by teletype. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So in this picture here, we have three different, uh, those multiple stations. Was each one designated to a certain area or place or, or ship they were sending it to? Or was there like something where they could change a dial? And well, yeah, there to- were lots of dials. But um, when I got a message that would be outgoing, I would take it to somebody, somebody. Some, uh, some just somebody there. Just and then somebody they, there, they would right. do all the adjustments would, needed. Yes. Oh, okay. So then it's like kind of like what, like an airplane tower today if you yes. needed to contact a tower you change the, the the knobs and correct the frequencies oh okay do you remember um what is it your final kind of message you, you sent before you had retired from the no because when i became the the, the section leader mm-hmm. i was not there like i was that, not doing i was sitting up in the, at the main desk mm-hmm. making sure everything was running Properly. smoothly mm-hmm. right oh okay so now you were your, then you left in 1958. Yes. So then, where were you, where did you head after, after your service? Um, I had a good counselor in the Navy, mm-hmm. so I went to a trade school, RCA Institutes, located in Greenwich Village, New York, where we learned all about electronics. Um, one of the things I did, I built myself a radio. Oh. Yeah. So like a full on. Just a full on. <laughs> a full on radio. Okay, then that was I, I. That was a couple years schooling. Okay, then we had on campus interviews. So I was interviewed by a company called Philco, mm-hmm. and they were just making computers. So that's how I got involved in computers. I was a technician, and then part of the national installation team for these computers. Okay. And it took a good three months to install a computer because everything was so big. Oh, geez, I probably mean, what, huge. How big were they? Were they like? Well, you know, just the memory would fill up this room, and memory, the, just the memory, and we had a big memory, eight K. Oh, eight K was a big memory at the time. <laughs> That's 
that's it's that's what nowadays that's nothing you know we no, have, I, ha- I i have a little thumb drive at home which is 16 yeah. gigs. gigs yeah yes <laughs> that but then what is it to fill that would have been what how many rooms that oh, would thousands no, no. of mean, rooms we, we tried to upgrade to 32k uh-huh. it couldn't do it it's too, the electronics too... wouldn't oh wouldn't, wouldn't support it oh and then nowadays th- things are so thin laptops are skinny getting more skinnier and we, and we all had false flooring False flooring. Because tape drives. Oh. Tape drives had to be air conditioned from the bottom up. So we had false flooring uh-huh. and all underneath the flooring was air conditioning. Oh, because those would those things overheat quite quickly yes. if they Oh yes. wow. Did you didn't realize how the evolution has changed so, well, so you, dramatically. I'll give you a, one of one of the first computers I worked on, in the memory itself, you could walk inside the memory and it was all <laughs> relays that closed. Uh-huh. Okay. Sometimes a relay would get stuck and you go in there with a broomstick and hit it and close it so it could go on down the line. <laughs> now I just take my thing to the Apple store. <laughs> yes. Yes. I uh, I hit it a couple of times with a broom before, you know, I take it to the store, but you know. <laughs> but so for those types of computers, did was that was there always had to be someone on hand? Were they always were they very yeah, temperamental? Every time, right, for for an installation, mm-hmm. you always had about three or four people assigned there that were there all the time, wow. just in case the computer malfunctioned, uh-huh, uh-huh. or the card reader, mm-hmm. or the card punch, mm-hmm. or one of the tape drives. Mm-hmm. What were those computers like primarily used for? Were they like just data storage and stuff like that, or were they more used for computations? Well, I was on the installation team. We installed the first computer in the Cheyenne Mountain for NORAD. Oh, for NORAD. For NORAD. In the Cheyenne Mountains in in Colorado Springs. Wow. Surrounded on all sides by 38 feet of granite. Oh, wow. I mean, this thing was secure. Secure. But, so we were, you know, I installed it. Then another group came in to maintain it. And then I was sent out to California where I installed a computer in Systems Development Corporation in Santa Monica. Then I came to Newport Beach. We installed a computer in a place called Aeronutronic, which is across Jamboree Road from Corona Del Mar High School, which is now a housing tract. Oh, it is. And then when I got there, the company said, Bill, stay there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So that's now we've gotten... Now you've moved officially here to Orange County. Now we've moved to officially to Orange County. Mm-hmm. Then... The computers at that time didn't have a lot of maintenance programs to run to, to check it out. So I, would, well, I was writing my own maintenance programs. Mm-hmm. And the manager in charge of the programming unit for Aeronutronics saw what I was doing and asked me if I'd like to become a computer programmer. So that's how I got into computer programming. And remember the acronym COBOL? Common Oriented Business Operating Language. It was just a way of coding mm-hmm. a program. And because I had been such a good troubleshooter on the computer, when somebody's program failed, I would troubleshoot it to, make, to find out what the error was and correct it. Wow. Then I started writing my own programs. Mm-hmm. Then from there, I went to the County of Orange and joined their data processing department where I became not only a programmer but also an analyst programmer Mm -hmm. then an analyst and what an analyst did was 
somebody like you would come walking in and say, I need a program to do a certain function. So I would sit down and, and you know, make out a chart, a flow chart of how, what should happen in order to fulfill your requirement. Then I would give that to a programmer and let them do all the coding for my input. Wow. And, and for your function, for, mm -hmm. yes. So it's kind of like nowadays with these new applications, right? It's all you know, all this coding stuff, and it's getting more and more popular now. With with kind of how you know what, what you what you have done in the past is now getting popular with the younger generations. I think with people get programming their own applications and stuff like that. So, so I just want to make a note that you you still do that to this day because I mean you do all of our mission briefings, so all the um, quarterly mission briefings that get sent out. Is the one that puts it all together for us. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. That <laughs> you did all these things with computers. Yes. Yeah, all the things done in computers. Sorry. And we use constant contact, which is extremely limited. <laughs> Very limited. Extremely. Yes. We'll try and look for more features. So. Well, we'll sit down and look at yeah, it. We go. <laughs> We all learned how to use it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we click the email and just explore. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, that, so then now you are officially in Orange County. Yes. Um, you then get, um, how long did you stay at, the, at that company, the computer company? Oh, I, uh, not very long because one of the things about some of these in companies that had in, contracts from the government their fiscal year was their calendar year so guess what you got for christmas a pink slip oh really yes so i applied for and got a job with the county of orange mm -hmm. okay so in 1971 i went to work for the county of orange then i was offered an opportunity to go to work for the personnel department to be their primary analyst mm -hmm. and what i did there was i developed a huge system for personnel, payroll, and retirement. Oh, wow. So for the whole for the whole county. For the whole county. It did wow. all of the personnel work, all of the payroll work and all retirement work. Wow. And that's all and then how long did they use that system for? They used it for at least ten years. Ten years. Oh. Now every you know it's all it's done electronic. It, yeah. Yes. Yes. But, you know, to know that, you know, you'd help develop that system, yes. it's, it has to be, in your head, very amazing, right, to know that it was people called, are using it. It was PRMS, Personnel Resources Management System. Wow. So then you were working for the county. Yes. How did John Wayne Airport get into the equation and all that? After I retired, mm -hmm. okay, I became a tour guide at John Wayne Airport. Now, John Wayne Airport has two groups of volunteers, tour guides and ambassadors. And our jobs were to greet customers and educate customers and help customers, okay? So that's exactly what Mark Foster was looking for when he put together this museum. Mm -hmm. He knew that tour guides and docents worked at John Wayne Airport. So he contacted our coordinator at John Wayne Airport and said, would any of your people 
liked to be a docent at Lion Air Museum. He invited us all over here, oh, maybe May or June of 2009. We all looked over the place. He gave us a little talk on what we'd be doing. And a lot of us signed up that day to be a docent at Lion Air Museum. I am also a docent at Centennial Farm at the Orange County Fairgrounds, and it's the kindergartner's first field trip. So I again, remember that. Let me intrude here. I went there when I was in kindergarten. And Were she, you there in 2003? Yes. <laughs> I probably went there, saw you when I went on my first field trip yeah. in kindergarten. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, Mark's ambition for us was to greet the guests and educate the guests and that's what we that's what i've been doing you know for years now mm -hmm. at both centennial farm and here and here yes and that's actually why i mentioned at the beginning of the show a day oneer because you were officially on the soft opening so actually your day negative something something from our day four, four negative yeah, 40 we, actually we met with mark foster on july 1st 2009 mm -hmm. and he took us through what he would expect of us on a tour. Mm -hmm. We went to the upstairs elevated walkway. Mm -hmm. We walked all the way down there, down the stairs, and then made a nice big circle around. And that was his, what he wanted us to do on our docenting. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and you still do it to this day. Um, sorry, your mic wasn't on, they didn't hear you. You know, since day one that's why we call it day one or negative 40 whatever we call it in but June, in, in july of 2009 i had 12 hours of docent time really yes so you're really the first you know if we look at the charts you know <laughs> since 2009 10 years ago <laughs> yes. we'll see your day pop up right there yes. with the 12 hours yes yeah which actually is it's true because i mean we see you it's just i mean the people that had started in, since day one, I mean, it's just you and another and a couple other docents, but actually just two of you guys, right? Well, no, Larry Harris mm -hmm. and George and Fred Welsh uh -huh. were actually the first three dosed because they actually came up here a little before the opening. Mm. Um, Fred Welsh wrote the first handbook mm -hmm. for the docents and George, of course, with his uh, knowledge of all the airplanes, Larry... <laughs> it was just excellent. But I was, yeah, when, when, it, get, when it got down to the docents, I mm -hmm. was one of the first. First, wow. The, the official tour guide, first docent registered in the logbook. <laughs> okay. So um, taking it, go back a little bit here, uh, back to John Wayne when you were doing that, the, the ambassador, the, the greeting. When did you start doing that? One year after I retired, I wanted to give myself but a, a little rest. So, uh -huh. One year after I retired, I became a tour guide. Mm -hmm. I actually had a tour scheduled for 10.30 a.m. September 11th, 2001. Wow. And, wow. Of course, it was canceled. Canceled, yes. Because of mm -hmm. that. Did you end up showing up at John Wayne at the no, time, or I, you just stayed home? Yeah. No. Well, I got a call from the airport, and then I called the tour leader and told that person that was canceled. Canceled. Mm -hmm. Yes. What did the airport do when that happened? Well, um, actually, 
there were 38 planes that landed at John Wayne Airport and were stored all over the airfield because as soon as 9-11 happened in New York City, mm -hmm. the FAA gave out an emergency message to all aircraft, land now. Doesn't matter where you were. Wherever where you are, land now. Mm -hmm. And of course, with the runway being short out here, 5,700 feet long is the long runway, we could only take planes up to a 757. Mm -hmm. Okay, the bigger airplanes had to land at LAX. LAX, Terry, wherever the bigger runway was available. Correct. So when you, because you were doing it pre-2001, did you see, ended up, when you were at John Wayne Airport, seeing a difference with how people were and how the security was and everything like that? Security changed a lot, mm -hmm. okay. Before 9-11, security was low bidders. The airlines are responsible for screening. So they would put out a contract and the low bidder got the contract. So screening was limited, yes, yes. Then, then TSA came into the picture and now you have the screening that they provide. Mm -hmm. Which is all the, the arms out and the hands down. Was there ever TSA before that? No. So there was not, nothing that was called TSA? Correct, ever. correct. Oh, so it was, a, it was, a, it was, so it was founded after? It was the, founded in the Department of Homeland Security. Okay, they founded it and then because the perpetrators at 9-11 got in through a small airport in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. They were, e they were e very easily got through screening. Mm -hmm. Okay, once you get through screening at one airport and you fly to another airport and you're still in the secure area, uh -huh. you can get on another plane without being screened again. Mm -hmm. And they had box cutters in their pocket, mm -hmm. which wasn't caught at that first airport. Mm -hmm. So then they had and, and then the doors to the cockpits <coughs> were not locked like they are now. Mm -hmm. So they were able to get into the cockpit and force the pilot. Yeah, on yeah. all that's transpired all that after. Sort, yes. Mm -hmm. So then, so kind of, when was your next, do you remember when the next time you stepped foot in John Wayne after that? Oh, the next week. Oh, the next week. Oh, yeah. So was did you kind of sense a different climate in with the people there? Well, see, one of the things before 9-11, I could take the, the tour group, mm -hmm. the kids, I could take them through screening, and we could go onto an airplane. Not anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember you probably have gone to the gates, right? Go through, you got yeah, so family. Now, uh, so, see, right now my tour is an imaginary flight out of John Wayne Airport. Okay. And, you know, we... Uh, I, I, if I play my cards right, I can get a behind-the-scenes tour of TSA, mm -hmm. which is great for the kids. Mm -hmm. So they'll know what to expect in the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so now your tours for currently, so they're only in the kind of non-secure non -secure side. side. So right. it's pre-TSA stuff. Right. Oh, so then that limits you kind of just how and how everything That's is. That's why I have a, a an imaginary flight because I can take them outside mm -hmm. to the baggage check-in. Mm -hmm. I can take them inside to look at the big TV sets. Mm -hmm. I can take them to where they can get a boarding pass. Mm -hmm. I can take them to TSA. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I know that you have 
just a list of other volunteers, um, places that you volunteer at. Uh, so you never get bored, right? Correct. <laughs> you always have something to do, right? Every day. <laughs> so let's talk about some of your other volunteer experiences. So you, I have here listed OC Fair, Centennial Farm, Pacific Symphony Theater, and then Adopted Granddaughters. What is that last one, Adopted Granddaughters? Is that... The sophomore students at Corona Del Mar High School in history classes mm-hmm. are grouped up in pairs of well, like three or four or five kids. <coughs> Excuse me. They're assigned a veteran, mm-hmm. and they have to interview this veteran and make up a written report and turn it into their teacher for their think, project. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then at the toward the end of the school year. All of the veterans and all of the students get together for a giant luncheon in one of the gymnasiums. Well, you know, the uh, most, and I get all girls. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these girls I just fell in love with. Mm-hmm. And I said, Would you mind being our adopted granddaughters? That's how it all started. And um, the first four girls that we adopted were sophomores in high school. They just graduated from college. Oh, wow. Yes. Just Matilda graduated from George Washington University Mm -hmm. is now the press secretary and digital director for Congressman Harley Ruda. Wow. Taylor graduated from Vanderbilt. She now works in merchandising for Gap. Aline graduated from Boston University is now pursuing her master's degree in Uppsala University in Uppsala, Sweden. Natalie graduated from Oregon State. She's now a graphic designer. Mm. Then we have Caden, who's a junior at Southern Methodist University. Chloe, a junior at USC. Wow. So you still keep in touch with all of them? Yes. Always the little- First off, we're Facebook friends. <laughs> but being an old schooler, Mm-hmm. I send them snail mail. Oh. And they love snail mail. Oh, I know, right? I mean, you don't get letters nowadays. Yes. So to get a letter, it's, it's I, different. I just sent out happy Halloween cards oh. to all of them. Oh, to all of them? Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so cool that you still keep all in touch with them yes. after after the years. Because usually, you know, people that, you know, have, you know, that have met, you know, certain people, they don't really keep in touch. And, you know, it, it's nice that you're keeping in touch with them, seeing how they're doing and all that. And turns out they're all very successful from what they're I'm They're all very <laughs> successful. And they love cheesy pizza. Che- <laughs> because we always took them to Sergeant Pepperoni's for pizza. Oh, Sergeant Pepperoni's. Just, just for a nice night of mm-hmm. camar- camaraderie. Camaraderie. Yes. Oh, wow. So that's wow. And then you're still continuing that. To, the, to today, too? You're yes. still having all that? And then I also give them a mug. A mug? A, a, a personalized coffee mug. Aww. I that am is. the ring, the show ring announcer. Mm-hmm. The, the show, show ring in, in livestock mm-hmm. area where all of the animal competitions take place. So I am the background ring announcer. Mm-hmm. I basically, there's a judge who says why he judged certain people that a certain way. But I'm in the background telling people, you know, what they're looking at, mm-hmm. and what they're the, seeing, the kind of animals they're looking at, and what the judge is doing, and how he's doing it. Mm-hmm. When when I first retired, I went down to the administration building at the OC Fair and put in an application to be a a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. 
Well, it was at the end of the school year, so not enough time to get into um, Centennial Farm. Mm -hmm. So they asked me if I was okay with doing a computer, and I said yes. So I was taken down to the livestock office where at that time all of the kids submitted their applications on paper, and I would put all of that stuff into the computer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then when that was all finished, I counted it out and sorted all the ribbons that were going to be used. And one of the directors asked me if I wouldn't mind being the ring announcer because they didn't have one at the time. And I said, sure. So here it is. Mm -hmm. I've, I just finished 21 years of... 21 years? 21 years, and I'm about to go on my 22nd year. Wow. The fair starts July 17th of 2020. <laughs> Thanks for plugging that in. <laughs> so let's. I'm going to track now over to Lion Air Museum. So you joined, of course, the soft opening July 1st in 2009. Um, so you, and then you know we see a lot of docents kind of come and go you know you know sometimes it's health reasons sometimes they've moved sometimes it's that you know why did you stay for 10 years oh i love the place i love educating people about all of the things that general lion has in his collection mm. okay and you know um with lion air museum kind of turning 10 years this year like what kind of wishes do you have for its future do you have any types of specific wishes you'd like for its future? A P-51. Oh, <laughs> and then also, like, what would you predict for the future of Lion Air Museum? Would we still be focusing on, you know, education, education or is there other things? to? No, education. You'll be the primary focus. Yes, yes, because mm -hmm. one of the things I also do is mentor new docents. And in that first week, they're, you know, they, they have a nice uh, outline of what, the docents should learn for four weeks in a row. And the first one and number one in the first week is the objective of the museum. And I always say it in one word, education. To continue that. We, and we continue education. We tell people all about the things in the museum. Yes, yeah, so how, how many have you, have you mentored since you've been starting mentoring all our docents? I don't know. You don't know? Well, it's I too hard to count. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's the. D <laughs> not many. Not many, right? I mean, the, the people that have stayed outweighs the people that have left. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The ones you've mentored, they've they've come really far. They're great tour guides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they've on they've gone on to done a lot of you other know, things. Other things, yeah. you know, be part of other museums, mm -hmm. be. be do other things within Lion Air Museum that, you know, doesn't necessarily f about docents, but they've gone on to do a lot of good stuff. Yeah. One of the things I, very early on, I gave a tour to a couple guys I knew, and they brought along a friend of theirs, Frank Weichel. Oh, really? So Frank mm -hmm. Weichel was so impressed with my tour mm -hmm. that he went right outside to the front desk mm -hmm. and filled out a volunteer application. Wow. And you know what Frank Weichel did, you know, with his trips. Trips, yes. Over to mm -hmm. Europe, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. And I think now what he's... he's now he's living on the island of Cyprus. Um, oh. Just thank you so much for, for all you've done for us. I mean, you've obviously given back to the community more than 
you've taken. I'm mm-hmm. I'm sure of that. So yeah, thank you so much for being our day oneers, mm-hmm. and we we really appreciate you. Yeah, and, and you know, we love you. You know, for the past ten years, right? And you know, his your mentorship to all of our docents. You know, yeah. whether to they were young, years. yeah, to, to whether they were young or some older. You know, you help kiss, keep that history alive for everyone and. Of course, your volunteer work outside the museum is, is just phenomenal. And your work has impacted, I think, so many lives. So <laughs> It's been my distinct pleasure. Oh, and I thank you for sitting across the table from us today. Thanks, Thanks Bill. Thanks, Bill. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe on all your favorite apps. This has been Marcus Gropel with On the Flight Line. Till we meet again, and blue skies to you.